Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hey, Micah. How's it going, my friend? Oh, just swell. Spring is around the corner. We've got some great links this week. We're about to start promoting our new workshop next month. Mm-hmm, Life's good. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about that new workshop. I think we're going to get the whole stuff together soon, right? So that we can start talking about it. But we're we're doing a test run, aren't we? Yeah, in the coming weeks. Sweet. We're going to have a special guest on our Nerd Alert later this month. So make sure to tune in. Well, maybe not more exciting, but just as exciting. Yes. Good phrase. Good phrase. Um, also, I don't know about you, but it was 75 yesterday here. Well, I was in Raleigh where it was 80. So, okay, well, that's, yeah, that's different. It's <laughs> a different thing. But karma is a B I T C H because I am in Chicago and it is 30 degrees with snow oh. everywhere. So, I'm not sure that's karma. I think that's just changing locations, but okay. <sighs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But <laughs> you did nothing wrong by moving. <laughs> <laughs> I was bragging to people about the 80 degree weather. That's the karma. Oh, yeah, I need yeah, to be humbled legit. a bit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have some great links and I'm excited about the nerd alert. Can we get a tease? Yes. Today's nerd alert is a little bit of a story time. I'll be chatting about my time at the good old Penguin Random House, where I was a book designer right at the beginning of my career and talk about what it's like designing books, the processes, things that might surprise you, and the very specific design workflows that you go through when working on a book, which is very specific to publishing and not so much other industries. So I think that'll be fun and hopefully educational. And if you love books, I think we mostly all do here at the podcast. I think uh, it'll be pretty fun and some good insight. Yeah, nice. But before all that greatness, our articles this week. Oh, yes. This first one's fascinating. It's really just like making me think a lot about why we need new typefaces and potential innovations within type. So it is from Ion Design by AIGA. It is titled, Will It Go Round in Circles? Radius, a new typeface, says yes. So this is a new variable font by Radek Lukasiewicz. I am trying, not sure if I succeeded on that name. (laughs) It's from the Foundry Three Dots type. And the thing that's really interesting about this typeface is that it's variable and succeeds best when living on a curve. So the kind of hype, the beginning stages of this type started from the idea that we often put type on a curve in designing in some way. And it always kind of leads to some awkward letter spacing. It's really tough to do in finesse. I have to do this all the time with packaging as like, uh, we have a claim. It's like 70% less fat on the front of a cheese packaging. And then, you know, to make it not just like straight boring text, we'll put it on a curve or something like that. So it looks like a sticker. So I am constantly dealing with type on a curve and I feel the struggle. So Lukasiewicz decided to address this by creating uppercase only variable font that has certain adjustments to the anatomy of the characters depending on the radius of the circle that the type is on. So to kind of describe the type, it's certainly like a display face. It's really, really fat. Kind of reminds me of Chi by Ono Typeco. 
and it will change the weight of the individual letter forms depending on where they're sitting in the circle so that the negative space is pretty much very even across the letter forms as they form the circle. The letter forms themselves are very bold, so it's like they start just filling in the gaps that would otherwise be awkward letter spacing when you put type in a circle. That's kind of true. If you actually click on the link in the article to the font where you can test it on their website, I don't know either, but I feel like it's Lukashowicz. Lukashowicz. Wow. Okay. That's my guess. You should have just we'll corrected see. We'll see me. who's right. <laughs> I was really entertaining hearing you say it, but, uh-huh. and I don't know that that's right either. Anyway, I clicked on it and this article that we're linking to makes it kind of seem like it's this magical variable font where when you put it in a circle, it adjusts itself. But really the clever thing that they did, he, they, it, they, I don't know, the foundry did is have a variation axis for the width of the top, Mm. independent from the width of the bottom, which is also independent from the width of the letter forms overall. Yes. Yes. This is a good, good linking to the individual page. That's very smart. That's such a neat idea. You know, we keep finding these variable fonts where we're like, why should variable fonts exist? Mm -hmm. And this is such a clever thing that's useful. If you're putting it in a circle, you can make the top larger and the bottom smaller, and that will help it read better in a circle. But Mm -hmm. you could also put it on a perspective if you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean. With this axis. Oh my gosh. No, you're totally yeah, right. I don't know. Some of the like letter forms become triangular when you start taking the axes to the extremes on the bottom or the top. So you can imagine how it almost it feels so much like psychedelic lettering that we've seen fonts that are based on that before, but this perfectly uses technology to kind of encapsulate the flexibility of weird curvaceous letter forms that used to exist from lettering and is now existing in typeface and I feel like it mimics the idea behind the lettering pretty well. Mm. Yeah, good point. But yeah, thanks for telling me to go to this page from threedotstype.com because I think it is a much better explanation of, yes, this type can go on a curve and fit nicely, but there's really interesting thinking behind it. And to be fair, obviously they're describing how the idea came from that and that's the point. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that it's like, it seems magical at first. It's like learning a magic trick or something, you know, you're like, oh, that's cool now that I know how it works too. Yeah, agreed. Very cool find. Next up is also a cool find. It is from the Brand Inquirer. But I've seen, actually, I feel like I've seen some buzz about this, so I'm excited we're talking about it. And the article is titled, Mexican Type Designer Creates New Spanish Vowel for Gender Neutral Language. So you kind of have to have some understanding of how the Spanish language works, but I know quite a lot of languages have words that are gendered. So like when you learn Spanish, certain words end with A for feminine, O for masculine. And like certain nouns, like for no good reason, will be like masculine or feminine. Mm. And like then there's, you know, amigos would be friends and then it would encapsulate friend, male friends and female friends. So sometimes things would stay masculine even if they were plural encapsulating like many people. So that's like mm. some basic linguistics. So what this designer did, type designer Aldo Ario, he created a ligature that combines A, E, and O. So those are, I believe, are the letters that can create gendered words. And by creating a ligature with all those letters together, you're in fact not representing masculine or feminine in any ways. It's like a very inclusive letter form. I just think it's interesting. I think maybe we've seen one or two examples of this. I don't think for the Spanish language, but maybe another one. I remember us having an article a long time ago 
ago about somebody who kind of did a similar thing for French. French, yes, that's exactly it, because they have a similar logic. The ligature itself, like, is so seamless with the design of the type that it lives in. It's, like, really interesting and almost makes the words themselves look more interesting. Also, it's a very interesting solve for an A-E-O ligature. I know I said interesting, like, six times, but... I agree. I honestly missed the O until I read it. I just saw like A-E. And it's a little tough because like when I read a lot of the words, it looks so much like an E to me that it's hard not to see it as an E. Mm. Even in some instances here, when you read it on a wall... It just looks like a stylized letter rather than Mm -hmm. a new letter. And it's real Mm -hmm. easy for me to get caught up in what I already know and lose the point. Yeah. But I think the concept is so cool right and wise (laughs) you know like it doesn't make sense for it to be that binary dynamic anymore and to be changing the language to fit the favorite word of yours zeitgeist right how'd i do Mm -hmm. yeah you did great you did great it's so cool it's such a great idea this should absolutely be normal (laughs) yeah Totally. I'm curious to see how people use it. The letter itself is called Sicte. It's been a long time since I took I don't Spanish. Know Spanish so if you need a name for it, that's what it's called. We'll certainly be keeping our eyes out for how it's used. Very exciting. Ironically, there's two E's in that spelling. So why is that ironic? Well, it just looks like an E to me, you know? Oh. It's okay. But I mean <laughs> I see the actual double story A. It's like looking at one of those eye puzzles. Where yeah. If you adjust your eyes, you can start seeing it different from how you first saw it. Yes. But there's something about like the first thing that you see that is hard to get past. Yeah, I feel that. But still, very cool project. Excited to share it. Very cool. Moving on from PC Mag, Google introduces reading optimized Roboto Serif typeface. I also love the byline on this. It says Domo Arigato Serif Roboto. <laughs> Sorry, that just makes me giggle. This is like goofier than the other stuff that they've put out. I find it interesting. Yeah, right? So Roboto itself was debuted in 2014 for the Android system font. So it's like Google's classic user interface typeface. It was then followed by Mono, like Roboto Mono, a slab in a condensed. So it's like a little bit of a super family. And they've actually, I didn't know this, that Google continues to update it as they update their software. But now the super family is expanding to a serif that was designed by commercial type. So they got like a very reputable foundry to be working on it. And instead of having to mimic Roboto Sans or the other designs, they were able to design it from scratch. I feel like that's why it kind of has this very quirky nature to it. There's a nice video that shows off the typeface and, you know, the different weight, width, and optical size axes, which is excellent. Like, that's awesome. There's a open source font that has all those kind of assets attached to it. And so, yeah, it's probably big news. I always forget <laughs> what like Roboto looks like, to be honest. I was even like, do I even see Roboto? Because I use, you know, my iPhone and stuff. I don't use Android systems. But then I noticed on my Gmail interface, there's like a lot of Roboto going on where there isn't Google Sans. And I was like, oh, I guess I do see it more often than I thought. That's interesting. I mean, I I feel like because it's supposed to be like a UI font, at least initially, right? Like it's hard to catch. I don't know. I'm always Mm -hmm. like when I'm looking at a specimen, I can see it. But at the same time, whenever it's in use, I kind of just like breeze past it and don't notice. 
Yeah. So I have yeah. no idea where else it's used. Yeah, we might be seeing it way more often than we realize, but. The video is nice. I kind of skipped over the video. And interestingly, ooh, this was a thing that I, I think I mentioned in our secret chat. They have an axis for grade. Yeah, what is that? Oh, okay. We definitely need to do a nerd alert on it then. That's what I was going to suggest because I had a long conversation with Thomas the other day about the difference between weight and grade. Because, you know, there's like a standard weight axis if you're building a variable font and, you know, you go from light to bold or, you know, whatever in between. And grade looked the same to me. And I was like, what the heck is the difference? And this actually came from we were reviewing some content that is going to get published soon. And so it was like explaining what grade is. And I was like, wait, I don't understand. It's basically weight, but it's not weight. Visually, it it has characteristics of weight, but the outside edges of the letter forms don't move. So you're just kind of making the inside skiddier and fatter so that it doesn't mess up any of your typesetting. Oh, that is genius for that UI typesetting world. I feel like that makes a lot of sense now that you describe it. There's some debate about why that needed to exist, about how it originally was because of like printing on crappier paper. Oh. It needed to be, I assume, darker or lighter. I don't remember. Yeah, But even that was kind of debunked a little bit, but still sort of true. Like that's not where it came from, but it could be useful, that kind of thing. Oh, my gosh. We definitely need a nerd alert on that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Great. Roboto. Amazing. I mean, if you want to try it out, it's open source. It's on Google Fonts. Go give it a whirl. See what it's like in use. It's probably really nice because commercial type hasn't done anything that's not nice. So, Did you look at the PDF that was linked? No, I'm looking now. There's a PDF in this article where they made a quote-unquote guide called Get Comfortable with Roboto Serif. And it's basically just like a little book that is a giant type specimen. These cute, weird illustrations. I really like this. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I guess, that's sweet. why I was saying it was weirder than their usual stuff. Like, you kind of get the same illustrations in the video, but it's all yeah. over the book and weird colors for Google and whatnot, you know, whatever. I, but I um, really want to read this actually. Like, the way they designed it, there's this thing called eye yoga where you just move your eye around a shape. Like, what? I okay, I'm intrigued. Weird. Go check it out so we can talk about it. Yeah, we're checking out the PDF that's linked for fun. But also like a great specimen shows you all the details in crazy detail. Yeah, well designed. I'm really excited about this next link we have that you shared that also has to do with user interface design that I found very novel. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, the kids call this a tweet. (laughs) A thread, actually. Oh, sorry. (laughs) So this is Steve Choger, who is extremely popular designer now, and he at least helped write one of my favorite books on UI design called Refactoring UI, which is linked to in his bio. And he does these like before and after examples to teach you some concept about design. And so this one is about if you're working on designing for dark mode, that just inverting the colors isn't quite enough, right? Mm-hmm. And there's really good visual examples where he he takes little points and like even shows you the CSS of what he did, where like adding a subtle border or slightly adjusting the hue saturation luminance instead of like straight color, for example, that kind of tiny detail to bring out the details. 
Yeah. I'm curious why you liked this. Because I hate <laughs> this dark mode. It's not your wheelhouse. Yeah, no, oh. I actually really hate dark mode. I usually can't stand it. I feel like I can't see anything and someone turned the lights off and I get really uncomfortable in dark mode. But there's some things that are just generally dark mode, like Spotify, dark mode, always. And I don't even notice Spotify because, like, I use it every day and it's no big deal. And I'm sure they do stuff in that interface. Like, actually, some of the points that he makes in this Twitter thread I see on the Spotify interface, which I find very interesting. So one thing that Steve mentions is that if you have, like, let's say a lineup of objects and there's one object or button that's supposed to be closer to you, like is the main button, like a play button, and next to it are the rewind and fast forward, the play button should actually be lighter because it's closer to you. Like if you were in a dark room, something that's lighter is going to be closer to you. Something that's farther away is going to be slightly darker. And it's like those nuances, like I literally see it on my Spotify. The play button is white. The buttons next to it are gray. It's just like a really interesting way to combine talking about hierarchy and also talking about how design could mimic a well-designed thing in our real life and thinking about like how our eye understands optical light and dark in real life and how that can come to design. I just think that like... That really thoughtful stuff makes me hate dark mode less. <laughs> you know? And I mean, it's also like skeuomorphism, which you've talked about yes. at length in the past, right? But kind of a subtle version where it's not it's not going overboard trying to like mimic leather and wood. It's just mimicking how objects actually work in physical 3D space and seeing yeah. some of those ideas to like pull your attention or push your attention. Yes. It reminds me of the concept of biomimicry. Were you ever taught about this? No. What? Is that frogs? It could be. So guys, new vocab word for everyone. Biomimicry is this concept that our like natural world can influence the products we design, like physical products, not necessarily digital products. But this could be an example of that. So like, for example, Velcro, this is my only example I have. Velcro is biomimicry. (laughs) Apparently there's some plant or animal that has some sort of contraption that is like Velcro that naturally exists. And that is how we created Velcro. We found this animal or plant, saw how that technology, quote unquote, works on in nature, and then brought it to an actual product. And I think that- That's fascinating. It's just like a really interesting subgenre of design and 3D design that is very fascinating. And like this kind of reminds me of that. I get my biomimicry vibes. That is neat. I just learned something. How cool. I love it. On that note, are we ready to get really nerdy with more vocab and fun stuff? I think we are. We're going to be talking about book design, a very niche part of the design world, a very small percentage of what of the design world and the graphic design world, especially as everything is becoming more digital. I will not be talking about ebooks. We will be talking about solely physical analog books. To get started. Because you hate ebooks or just love? I can't even hate ebooks. <laughs> There's so little opportunity to design physical things in the graphic design trade, I guess you can call it, that it's processes that have existed for decades and decades. And I think that's something that's really special. And I think reason why books in general are just meaning something different to us as a society than they did before. They like have a little bit of a preciousness to them. 
So I worked at Penguin Random House early in the career. It was my first job as a graphic designer after all my internships. So I definitely don't have like a full, well-rounded story, but this is my story. This is what happened when I worked in a children's book department for six months of my life. Things that I learned is that at the very start, book design starts like years ahead of book releases. Book designs have been a year to two years, super, super long timelines for these things. And then there's kind of like two major tasks when you design a book. There's like the cover design and then there's the interior. Sometimes one person will do both. Oftentimes in adult literature or adult fiction or adult nonfiction, it's like one person designs interiors. They're just like in typesetting world solely. And then one person designs covers and they're like always trying to create the quote unquote poster for the book. So it's much more expressive avenue and much more technical avenue that you can go down in book design. When I was designing children's books, because there were like fast turnarounds on these things, I got to do a little bit of cover and a little bit of interior design. And that can teach you a lot of things. And like, obviously, we're not going to get into all of it. But I think it's really interesting, too, that people think that like authors have a lot of say in book design often. Often they don't have that much say in the book design. Often it's like the creative director that is kind of steering the ship and then the designer gets like the agency to do as they please. In children's book design, it's a lot less typography focused than I'm sure adult publishing is because I was just in the children's sector. Like basically... The interior of children's books, like especially young children, has to be super, super legible type with letter forms they're familiar with. So you're going to like do the single story A's, the single story G's. I know they love like a good bass. There's like a children's version of Baskerville, I'm pretty sure that we used to use. And you need like kind of just like big open letter forms. Your type's not going to look elegant. It's going to be like a little bit bigger than an adult book. And then for the covers, you don't want to go very sophisticated. So like sometimes you're actually not using the best fonts out there. You're using a font that would make a child want to read a book or make an adult think that their children would want to read this. So I think that's like also an interesting insight is the typography is polished, but it's not like as it would be in the adult publishing world where I think you see like very elegant covers. And then just like designing an interior of a book is like a very, very, very technical thing. I mean, like I designed a book that was, I think, 200 or so pages. So you literally, there's like code set up in your InDesign file that takes a Word document and just like fills every single page according to your margins, according to your gutter, and to like all the page size. And then you like set the type, like you set what typeface you're going to use and the letting. Then you have like a gazillion widows and orphans and like so much of interior typesetting is dealing with widows and orphans, figuring out, okay, can I make like the tracking of this paragraph tighter to move like my orphan up a little bit to the paragraph before? You definitely can't be messing with any baselines. Baselines have to be like super consistent, which I feel like we're as graphic designers, that is the only time I've ever had to do like super, super consistent baselines in InDesign. And it's just like really interesting. Sometimes you'll have to ask copy editing to like remove a word in the manuscript so you could get rid of a widow or an orphan. That was the last resort. If like you had a widow or an orphan, you'd be like, can you get rid of this author's word? And they would do it. And that was pretty amazing. <laughs> That's the kind of thing where I'm like, I've made a few ebooks, right? Mm-hmm. And done a little bit of real typesetting. Though in my experience, you have done it significantly better. But it's one of those things where it's like, I never thought about 
the red tape, the like rigmarole that must exist to ask permission to move a word around or get rid of a word or something like when it's just you or, you know, the person and it's just you and somebody mm-hmm. else, you can just be like, Hey, is this cool? And they'll yeah. be like, nah, it's fine. Yeah. But, but that's wild. Yeah. There's pretty much no tolerance for widows or orphans. I thought there'd be some, there's, <laughs> there's no tolerance. That is just bad typesetting. So if you do see it in a publication, you should give like a little side eye and be like, mm, that shit shouldn't be flying because there are people in place to make sure that doesn't happen. Interior design is just like this hilariously tedious thing that I was obsessed with. Like I looked forward to designing interiors because I love those details. I mean, I don't know if I could do it every day because I still had cover designs that I got to do, but it's very fun. Funny enough, a lot of the sales teams, especially at publishing houses as big as Penguin, will have quite a bit of influence on the cover designs because they know what sells. And I think that kind of gets some book cover designs in this bad trap of the sales team asks for a certain look because this look has sold before. We talked a little bit about that with the romance novels, how there's like a one style note that I think is so overdone and I'm so annoyed by, but I bet they do it because they were able to sell books before with this color palette and this illustration style. So why don't we do more of this color palette, more of this illustration style? There are definitely articles that are picking up on this recently, which I think are pretty interesting. I even designed a book cover. I helped design it. I didn't do it fully. It went into its galley. So that means that the galley is like a preview of the book that you send to like editors to read the book so they can write reviews. It basically means the book's done but they haven't printed the real thing yet. It got sent to Galley and then the sales team totally vetoed the cover. They redesigned it from scratch. I have the Galley at my house, but I wasn't at Penguin when they redesigned the final cover. So I have this very specific cover of a book that no one else has out in the world because I kept the Galley. That's so cool. Which is like cool and hilarious. And I definitely would have loved my cover to actually have been used, but I'll live with it and it's fine. Also a weird publishing thing is you'll notice that like green is not a very popular book cover. I have no explanation for this. They, a lot of the industry does not like green covers. So like if you actually look at your bookshelves, and I think this is for both children's and adults, it's pretty rare to see green covers. Wait, rare I don't understand. What's wrong with green? Who knows? Maybe it's the way that it contrasts with type. Maybe it's the way that it's not as stand out. Micah is now walking to his bookshelf. And looking at his books and holding out his hands, I need his verdict when he arrives back at his desk. It looks like he has what? There's one book. There's one that I thought I got. I got a copy of Frankenstein recently, but it's like dark blue. And the other Mm -hmm. one is like this weird marketing book that, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't. It was like self-published, basically. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I don't know. I would like an answer. I remember just like one of the editors being like, yep, no green books. We can't do green. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, it's just how it is. I was like, wait, but why? (laughs) Now I want to make a book just so I can make it green. Yeah, right? We got to make a league green book and prove them all. Yeah, that would look so good. The heck? I know. So, yeah, those are like just some of the secrets, some of the behind the scenes. Like book design is a very long process with crazy long timelines, especially at like a big place like 
Penguin. I don't know what it's like at a smaller, more arty or niche publishing house, but there are so many people. You're working with editors, you're working with copy editors, you're working with creative directors, and the sales team gets in there one way or another. The people that are creating the books aren't working hand on hand with the sales team, but like the sales team is just like this greater team that is saying like yes or no <laughs> to things. <laughs> like the designers, like I read the manuscript, then you design. Like you don't have to if it's a longer book, but that was my preference. And then you get like so informed and like you feel like you understand so much of the book. Like I know a lot of cover designers for adult fiction try to read like a full book to quite understand like the tone and the author and the story. Because you have to combine all of those informations into one single image that will capture someone at a bookstore. And yes, I do judge a book by its cover and I'm very guilty of that, but that is how (laughs) I I mean, everybody does. That's like human nature. That's not even, I don't even understand why that phrase exists. Don't judge a book by like, (laughs) who doesn't judge a book by the cover? Can't not. That's the point of the cover. That's why covers exist. Exactly. Like if we're not judging a book by a cover, we're like discrediting the designer that is behind that cover. Mm, Interesting. What a twist. That's my hot take, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Micah, do you have any like burning questions about what happens in the publishing industry? How many versions do you have to make and show your boss? Is it like a, all right, I made a hundred covers and then they pick one that is okay. And then they make you make five more of those or something, you know? It depends on the book. I don't think I really did any covers from scratch because I I wasn't there for very long. But I remember one of my coworkers would like make a different cover every day. And he did this for like two weeks until finally my creative director said, yeah, that's the one. Oh, it's too juvenile. Oh, like especially in in children's book, it's like, oh, that's too mature. That's too juvenile. Mm. It's all about like hitting the right age group. But I'm sure with like adult fiction, it's also similar where they're just comping up a bunch of different covers conceptually. Like I'm not even saying they move the, the author's name somewhere else. Like they probably have to do maybe five five to 10 conceptually different covers before one is chosen. This is assuming. Again, I don't know for sure, but for example, I did this whole book on Gudetama, the Sanrio character that I'm obsessed with. If you don't know Sanrio, they made Hello Kitty. So like, that's the vibe. So it was a licensed title and they gave me a bank of images of Gudetama and it was like a Gudetama guidebook. So I made all these infographics. Wait, Gudetama's the little egg, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I made all these infographics with Gudetama I had all the graphic assets I need, but it was a matter of conveying this egg's point of view and these like really playful (laughs) graphics. That doesn't have much back and forth because we're not changing the art. The art is what it is. As long as we can present the information in a clear way and there's like a good design system, especially in interiors, it's all about the system. It can be pretty successful. I think in a cover though, that brings up a lot of opinions because everyone has their personal opinion of how they pick out books. And then there's like the opinion of sales and there's opinion of the point of view of the children. Children. And there's like the opinion of the creative director or the author can get their opinion in. Like one of the covers I did, the author wanted her 14 year old daughter to design the cover because the book was about a 14 year old girl. And it's like, no, like that's not going to work. Like, <laughs> no, we're never going to let some like an author's daughter design a book. But yeah, that was one of the funnier stories I remember. That's such a classic designer horror story scenario, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, I didn't have to mediate that. Thank God I didn't know the author. But like, that sounds so not fun to have to be like, um, I'm sorry, we are not authorizing your daughter to publish this book that's expected to make X amount of money from a best-selling author. Right. But yeah, it was a fun time. I still love, like, I think book design's amazing. I got to do some freelance book design when I was a freelancer. Maybe one day I'll revisit the industry again, but it's a very specific niche industry that has a lot of cool things in it that still has traditions that are like decades old, which is pretty unusual. 
Yeah, that's the part that I think you don't really appreciate until you're really in it mm-hmm. of all of the things that you don't know that are just like, this is how it's done. Yeah. I don't count the green thing. That's silly. But <laughs> picking sizes, the widow conversation, and probably at some point too, testing it on paper and seeing what it looks like when it's printed out. And I don't know about you, but even in my very limited like printing capacity, I will Mm -hmm. think something looks great on screen, print it on paper and be like, oh dear God, that's huge. What? Yeah. The margins can't be too tight that your thumb can't hold the book. You never want your thumb to be covering the text because the margins are too small on the exterior of your interior. Yeah, that's interesting. I love those little things. We can definitely get into some of the more nitty gritty things in another podcast, but this is just like the overall... How Olivia spent her time in the publishing industry. So cool. Thanks. Mad respect. Thanks. Our friendship was blossoming during this period. So I was oh, probably. I remember. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I know that egg is because of you. I had never oh seen my gosh. the egg before. The egg. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> Thanks for being such a great listener. I know that was a lot of me just kind of rambling. It was fun. It was great. I love hearing it. I'm sure Thanks. everybody else does too. Thanks. Well, yeah, if anyone has any thoughts or questions or curious about this or that, I I do not have power to get your book published. Um, I think a lot of that's a big (laughs) misconception. Like designers will get messages on LinkedIn being like, I'm thinking of publishing a children's book. Can you send this to your editor? And I'm like, I have zero power. No, that is not happening. I'm sorry. I've self-published a children's book. You can make a children's book and put it on Amazon. Oh, my gosh. We should sell your self-published children's book on the League site. (laughs) No, you. if you saw the typography, you would vomit. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's what we got today, folks. Fun times. Absolutely. <laughs> Tune in next week for uh, more great fun stuff and see you on the internet. Do-do-do-do. Do-do-do-do. Do-do-do-do.